You can introduce yourself for audio for introductions of things. Welcome to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. It's a podcast with myself, Dr. Owen Muir, as your host, and it's a companion podcast to the frontierpsychiatrist.substack.com, which is a sassy substack about health-related things. This is a conversation between myself and Jazz. She is the Senior Director at Brain Futures, which is a 501c3 not-for-profit. In this conversation, we try to get to a shared understanding of what we actually might mean by mental health, the mental health crisis, and whatnot. This means accepting that other people's minds might not be thinking the same things that we're thinking, and so trying to get to the same understandings is a process that we have to take seriously. We need to build trust, and that's really, at the end of the day, what this conversation is about. I'm Jazz Blastra, and I'm the Senior Director at Brain Futures, which is a nonprofit that advances access to new treatments and technologies in brain health. I'm Owen Scott Muir. I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist by board certification. I identify as an interventional brain medicine doctor because I don't really love the branding of psychiatry or the expectations. A lot of this goes back to me constantly thinking about the role of trust and expectations in how any conversation goes. What is the difference between a neurological disorder, a, psychi a psychiatric disorder, and a neuropsychiatric disorder? In the beginning, there were only humors. And that's a little bit of a joke, but we had neurology as a medical specialty. Sigmund Freud, we think of as a psychiatrist, he was a neurologist because we didn't have psychiatry as a separate medical discipline. To this day, the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology is one board, ABPN. What ends up in what bucket in medicine has a lot of historicalness to it. Neurology used to be all of it. If it was a brain or a nerve, that was neurology. And then Freud came along and had an explanatory model for problems people had that didn't involve localizing the lesion. Neurology took over things where you could point at where it was. And psychiatry took over things where you couldn't point at where it was. If you end up having a thyroid problem, then you go to endocrinology and you're not managed primarily by psychiatry. The accident of history is non-localizable neurology ended up as psychiatry. And here I am talking all the time about fMRI-guided treatment, so I'm getting myself in trouble. One of the people who brought this bridge back is Dr. Nolan Williams, who trained initially as a neurologist. He did neurology first then got board certified in behavioral neurology, and that not being enough residencies, did an entire other residency in psychiatry. And three board certifications in, he's a neurologist and a psychiatrist, and blah, blah, blah. It ends up being who's got the most practice in their training program with whatever the problem is to, to own it. It's an accident of history is the answer. So are we in a mental health crisis? Yes, in that we have no idea what that means and we feel very crisis-y about it. I feel crisis-y about it usually. Right. What is mental health? I have no idea. It is the worst term because it means nothing, which is really good for charlatans and hucksters and bad for people who are suffering. I would agree we're in a mental health crisis if in the same question you let me say, are we in a mobility crisis? Yes. When we only fill cars with water that should have taken gas, that's a mobility crisis. And we could have the same response to the mobility crisis of filling up gasoline-powered cars with water 
as we do to the mental health crisis. I'd say those are similarly crisis-y, right? The cars wouldn't move and you could talk about what a problem it was all day long, but the cars still wouldn't go because you filled them with water, not gas. That's how I think of the mental health crisis. It's a crisis of misunderstanding. The problem is you don't understand the problem and then you don't apply the right solutions and you act like it's a crisis, not an actual understandable and solvable problem. What do you see as the problem? If you don't know what a mental illness is or that there are different ones, and that's really important, is there a problem with people who are, for example, dying by completing suicide? Yes. That is one version of looking at the problem. Is there a problem with people having tremendous suffering needlessly throughout their day? Yes. Is there a problem of people being disconnected from each other and hopeless? Yes. Is there a problem of death by drug overdose? Yes. Is there a problem of many people feel anxious and worried? Yes. Is there a problem? Many people are traumatized and thus have sequelae of that problem. Yeah. It's a lot of different problems. Schizophrenia, homelessness, a poor definition for a problem creates more problems than accurately understanding. And so my argument is for starting with understanding and, and saying, okay, if the problem is defined as X, then what? Because the mental health crisis doesn't define anything enough for me to have an answer for you. We got to do something. We have to do something is one of the worst things for anyone who's not a huckster. If you are a huckster, it's great because just misdirected energy to do something, comma, anything is a cash grab. And that's awesome. I think what people probably mean when they say there's a mental health crisis is like the old adage about recessions versus depressions, where a recession is when your neighbor loses their job and a depression is when you lose your job. When people say there's a mental health crisis, they mean me and my immediate family and friends are suffering. People know more people who are struggling or in crisis. Maybe the question could be, is the incidence of diagnosable mental health conditions rising? Is the incidence of completed suicide rising? Are all these things that you listed before, are they getting worse? Yes. Completed suicide is, is measurable and well-tracked. And, and definitively, more people are dying by suicide in the United States, at the very least, now than previously. Yes. What do you think about the term deaths of despair? I think it's an attempt at good branding. It's lumping together death from overdose and death from suicide and death from alcohol use disorder. Death from problems associated with psychiatric illness. It's an attempt to draw a circle around something in a way that is trying to be helpful. I appreciate both the attempt to try to understand a problem and define it, right? Does that definition empirically hold up? Nate Silver doesn't think so, and Nate Silver's good at numbers. What's the difference between being in remission and being cured? Why don't you ever hear people talking about cures in mental health? Uh, we don't use the word cure because essentially the FDA won't let us. I'm a doctor saying the word cure has a very specific definition, which is actually more rigorous than the dictionary definition. So the dictionary definition of the word cure is having no signs or symptoms of a disease. I would argue many of the things I do to treat, say, depression, Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation as an example, leads to what could be defined as a cure. However, because of years of hucksterism, 
we had too many things offered up as cures that weren't. But you end up having to asterisk yourself into incoherence. Could it come back? Yes. I have athlete's foot powder that says it will cure athlete's foot. But that claim was adjudicated by the FDA a long time ago. Meconazole nitrate, a cure. That's a claim on a treatment that they would have to approve. And saying cure makes you sound like a charlatan. Until the FDA agrees with a label that says cure, I'm not going to say cure, even though people would love that. Remission is defined as no signs or symptoms of a disease, which is different from recovery, which I prefer conceptually, which is no signs or symptoms of a disease and at least one meaningful friendship outside the family and meaningful work or school. You're getting more into well-being and just whole person wellness territory there. I, do we need to use that many words to say human? Life anyone would want? Is that the purview of a, of a psychiatrist? or an- If you imagine the job of a physician stops at no signs or symptoms of a disease, no. If you imagine the job of a physician is to help people optimize full, rich, fulfilling lives and get and stay well, then yes, I tend to be in the latter camp. It's a little bit like trauma surgeons doing advocacy work to reduce gun violence. They got really good at sewing up bullet holes, but would rather do less of that, thanks. Because there's only so much you can do in the OR. I trained in Rochester for med school where the trauma surgeons were working with the police in the community to set up shot spotter systems and educate youth about gun violence to reduce the number of bullet holes they'd have to sew up. Trauma surgeons have been thinking about how to do this in the community better than psychiatrists have by a lot, would be my argument. I've seen this stat bandied about that something like psychiatry hasn't had a new class of drugs in 30 years or 50 years, and we've been doing all this work and research, but the mortality and morbidity rates are not coming down in our discipline. So... I want to know what you think about why psychiatry has been stuck in this rut for so long. For 2023 is a year where absolutely new things have come to market. The job of a physician is to understand first and then offer treatment options that will help. We have an entire medical discipline called physical medicine and rehabilitation, which looks to help people restore their physical functioning. And it's called physiatry. That's the actual name of the discipline. Now, psychiatry is restoring function of one's mind and psyche, right? And physiatry helps you move your knee. But whether it's referring you to a physical therapist or a psychiatric therapist or a psychological therapist or the right number of walks for you or a medicine to make the walks easier, I see those as very similar. We have a real dichotomy between functional problems, like problems of how something moves over time, and kind of structural problems. And it's a lot easier to think your arm is broken, let's fix it, than the way your arm moves is broken, let's fix it. Or the way you think about something is broken, let's fix the movement of your thoughts such that they function better in your life. And GI gets this, PM&R is a whole discipline for this. And orthopedic surgery is not the same as physical medicine and rehabilitation, but they both deal with that back pain. Why has innovation been so hard in behavioral health? 
we change the term to behavioral health and mental health. Every time we feel uncomfortable, we come up with a new label for what the hell we're doing. None of them are as good as feeling okay. <laughs> do you need behavioral health care? I don't know. Do you want to have a good life? Oh, yeah. Are you freaking out? Definitely. I'd like that to stop. Part of the problem is, again, a lack of definitions. Dan Carlin at Mind Medicine Now would say, we spent 30 years perfecting algorithms to make drugs as safe as water. And we got a generation of compounds with the efficacy profile of water. We were obsessed with errors of commission, like we didn't want to do any harm. It's in the Hippocratic Oath, right? But we also didn't want to risk helping people. Not too much anyway, which is an error of omission. We weren't willing to call a spade and to admit that the suffering we're seeing was unacceptable and do something about it. We limited ourselves only to things that were not harmful, which excluded a lot of things that might have been helpful. Thus, our vision was narrowed. And so if your expectation is, let's pursue treatments that might get people 50% better, you're not going to only look at things that get you 100% better. If your endpoint is remission, and that's all you'll accept, then you just spend your time on different stuff. So we spent our time on half measures because it made sense to do, given the constraints we set for ourselves, which were flawed. How unusual do you think that focus on remission is in your field? Very rare. If you don't know it's possible, then why would you do it? Do you think most of your colleagues don't know it's possible? I think they know it's possible, but they don't have it as, that's not the expectation. Look, I have drugs to prescribe. I'm a prescriber. I'm going to prescribe them. Those drugs are evidence-based, but to do what? To reduce suffering by 50%, not studied to, to el eliminate all the symptoms of the much less, heaven forbid, something that could get you even better. So you and I chatted a little bit this week about prevention of mental health and substance use disorders, mostly yeah. mental health disorders, I think. I'm curious if you could talk about wanting to reduce suffering but not eliminate these disorders. I, one of the reasons I worry about eliminating disorders, as someone who's enthusiastic about doing so, there's a reason they had a predisposition to have that problem in the first place. And it's a little bit like having a Lamborghini as your car, but moving to Colorado. And it's not going to perform well up the hill in the snow. But in the context of living in Denver in the winter, a Lamborghini is a poorly adapted car and you are a terrible driver. And so if you imagine everyone just like rags on you for how well your car performs, ignoring what car it is, then I'm a terrible driver. Now, it happens to be because I have a Lamborghini and there's snow and it's not a good snow car, right? My Subaru friends will rip on me. I'm just better adapted to be driving around L.A., and were I in LA, nice car guy. I think it was really, wow, you can sit on the 405 at five miles an hour with, in style. It's a context issue. Some people are, do better in the cold. Some people do better in the heat. That's what we're prepared for. Some people do better in high novelty environments. Some people do really poorly in low novelty environments. Some people are very careful. Some people are very reckless. We need a variety of people around. Unfortunately, some of those people are more vulnerable in some contexts. So in a high cocaine environment, people with the predisposition to be more curious and novelty seeking, which often shows up as ADHD, are more likely to use and get a lot of reward from cocaine and develop a cocaine use disorder. If you're 
predisposed to have a problem in a context. Some people gain more weight from McDonald's and you put them in a high McDonald's environment and they get obese. Some people are more likely to become depressed when things get bad and they're more likely to be depressed in a high depressogenic environment. It's our pre-existing vulnerabilities, which are boons in other contexts. You want some people around who are more curious and look under the rock for the extra thing because they just can't help themselves. We evolved together in a tribe. And when you lose track of the fact that we need each other, each of these individual vulnerabilities, which can be a profound disorder in the context of us together, may be a benefit. And so I don't want to think about eliminating people with mental illness. I do want to eliminate the distress people have. And sometimes that means environmental modifications. And sometimes it means acknowledging that this environment is one in which you are maladapted and we need to be able to help you function better in this very difficult environment in which you find yourself. But there's a classic ad for Valium that I think makes us cringe now, but should. And it's a woman in a broom closet. We can't eliminate her drudgery. We can help the anxiety, Valium or some such thing. It's a woman with a rag on her head and like a bunch of brooms and it's super sexist. And it's just like, you may, you want to die and no, stop doing that. Stop letting make but we, not everyone has that option. It's about being honest with ourselves. We could eliminate anxiety or we could make the world a better place so people wouldn't feel trapped. And I don't know that eliminating anxiety is the goal so much as can you, can we help you be untrapped? We don't need to eliminate people who have a predisposition to anxiety or depression or schizophrenia, but like, could we prevent them from having their disorder be triggered? So I will give you one, the easiest example of this I can come up with, which is cannabis and schizophrenia. So we have really strong data, mostly from Christoph Carell's work, other people as well, that ultra high risk for schizophrenia individuals who smoke cannabis are highly more likely to convert to schizophrenia. And so if you wanted to prevent schizophrenia, the easiest thing to do, in quotes around the word easiest, is get young people to not smoke any cannabis. That would prevent a lot of schizophrenia. Good luck with that, by the way. I think we can have a separate conversation about public health messaging around schizophrenia and cannabis and how effective it could be, but... You could I, prevent schizophrenia by yeah. reducing the rates of cannabis use. I think that would be a nice thing. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Frontier Psychiatrist podcast. Leave us five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps discovery and lets other people know that it's a great podcast. Sharing it with your friends also highly recommended. If you have enemies that you like to send podcasts to, you can do that too. Subscribing to the frontierpsychiatrist.com, which is the Substack, is also recommended. We're thrilled to have your readership and listening and spreading the word about the better future where people can suffer less is the point of all of this. Thank you so much for listening, sharing, and rating at five stars. If you've enjoyed hearing Jazz and I talk, there'll be more of it. Brain Futures is co-sponsoring an event that I'm hosting on January the 7th called Rapid Acting Mental Health Treatment 2024. You can get your tickets on Eventbrite. It's in San Francisco right before the JPM Health Conference. A special shout out to my friend Grady Hanna 
the CEO of Nightwear, whose idea it was in the first place. He and other exciting innovators will be there and talking to each other and to you at this reception. Eventbrite has the link, and it'll be included in the show notes.